this time, Children's Church is dismissed. In 1922, a novelist named W.L. George imagined the world in 2022. Here's a few of his predictions, quote, I suspect that commercial flying will have become entirely commonplace. It is practically certain that wireless telegraphy and wireless telephones will have crushed the cable system long before the century is done. Marriage will still exist, much as it is today, for mankind has an inveterate taste for the institution, but divorce will probably be as easy everywhere as it is in Nevada. Americans will be less enterprising and much more pleasure-loving. And we're amazed at such foresight Now, I'm glad there are cell phones and direct flights. There's also dismay as we're saved people looking at this world ruined by sin. But we know that there's a happy ending ahead of us for believers. For our peace and assurance, the Spirit has inspired spiritual men who have given us a glimpse of our final victory. Today we'll look at three lines in our statement of faith, and it should be in the bulletin insert, towards the end that focus on the last times. Based on these, three, based on these lines, we anticipate three key future events. First, we wait for the return of Jesus. Secondly, we wait for the judgment of Satan. Thirdly, we wait for the resurrection of life. As you can see, we're not only God's servants, we're also waiters. So first we wait for the return of Jesus. And let me read that relevant line there. We believe in the blessed hope, the personal, premillennial, and imminent return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I'll get to that 1 Thessalonians passage later. And about three years ago, I made some suggestions to amend this line. For one, I suggested adding a proof text, Titus 2.13. That verse would help us understand blessed hope. I'll read it in context from verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. It's a beautiful passage worth revisiting. Back in May 1st, guest speaker Zach Jones preached a good sermon on it. Take a listen on our website if you haven't already. Well, now let's talk about that blessed hope. This hope is not like, man, I hope the Washington commanders win today. Still getting used to the commander. It's not keeping your fingers crossed. It's not making a wish as you blow out the birthday candles. 
On the surface, we may not look so different from the world as we eagerly hope for what we do not see, but actually there's a world of difference. Our faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Our hope is secure because the object of our hope is secure. Both in Titus 2.13 and in the statement line, our blessed hope is grammatically and conceptually related to Christ's return. They're like two sides of one coin, the two ends of an unbreakable chain. Or to use a biblical image, our hope in Christ is the anchor of the soul that reaches the presence of God beyond the veil. Elsewhere, we have the same idea. Peter tells us we have a living hope as Christians on earth because we hope in a living Savior, Christ who's in heaven. Paul tells us that through the Holy Spirit, Christ lives in us, the hope of glory. John tells us that just having this hope purifies us because Christ himself is pure. We're secure in believing Jesus died, rose again from the dead, ascended, and now he sits at the Father's right hand. Someday, the same Jesus was taken up from us into heaven will so come in like manner as we saw him go into heaven. We can hope in many things, but there's no hope like this blessed hope. If you have that blessed hope, you'll get what you hope for. That's simple enough to understand. But I think we should spend some time discussing the three adjectives that precede the word return in that line, personal, premillennial, and imminent. When we say Jesus is returning personally, we're saying he's coming back to earth in person. I know that sounds obvious. But in our days with all the virtual meetings and online gatherings, we probably need another reminder that personal means in person. And historically, there have been some who claim that Jesus has already returned. They're called preterists, and they believe the events of Revelation 4 onward has occurred either partially or fully. Many of them say Jesus returned symbolically in the first century. They say he appeared for judgment at the destruction of Jerusalem at AD 70, about 40 years after his earthly ministry. This is a strange teaching. It goes against Acts 1.11, which I cited earlier. Jesus will return the same way he departed from the earth. His feet left Mount Olives in peace. But when they touched down again, the mountain was split and turned into a valley. It tells us that in Zechariah 14. His return will not be in the local news. No one will miss it. Everyone will see it. It will be in the global news. We read in Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. We read in Philippians 2, 10 through 11, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone, everywhere, every eye, every knee, every tongue, far and wide, high and low, 
will see him face to face. I didn't even mention the things that must happen before his return. Those with faith in Christ will see their faith turn to sight. When that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. We believe in the personal return of Jesus. Now, personal describes the nature of the return. The next two adjectives have to do more with timing. Let me explain the easier one first. Imminent means ready to take place, happening soon. It's appropriate to describe both the rapture and the second coming of Jesus. The rapture will happen, the church age will end, but we don't know when. The return of Jesus will happen, the tribulation will end, but the world won't know when. Our Lord warned in Matthew 24, 38 to 39, as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So that's imminent. Now let's talk about premillennial. As you know, Ask for the removal of this adjective. But I want to be clear and let you know that I'm still a dispensational premillennialist. I'm convinced that Jesus will return before he begins his thousand-year reign on the earthly throne of David. Some people think the throne of David is in heaven. But the throne of David must be on earth. Israel will be restored according to God's covenantal promises. Afterwards, there will be the eternal state. All of these details are in line with the consistent literal historical grammatical interpretation. And I don't let my reading of the New Testament override Old Testament prophecies. And I can go on and on, but if you're a member here, I sent you a chapter about this from a book. Hope you enjoy it. And just because I'm asking to remove premillennial from the statement of faith, that doesn't mean I don't want it elsewhere. The elders of our church have an official ministry document entitled, What We Teach About the Last Things. It's a useful guide as we promote here the doctrines of pre-tribulation rapture and dispensational premillennialism. But still you say to me, Pastor, why don't we just keep premillennial in the statement? I'll give two reasons why I think it should be taken out. And consider these subpoints under point one. First, I think settling the biblical order of end times can take some time. Secondly, I believe following the proper order of discipleship prioritizes membership over detailed eschatology. First, let me talk about settling the biblical order of times, end times, and why it may take some time to get that done. Personally, it took me about 10 years to solidify my position in the end times. I remember as a high schooler, I read through the entire book of Revelation in one sitting. And then as a college student, I worked at family Christian stores in Laurel. I saw eager customers grabbing the latest release of the Left Behind series books. That got me curious, and I got into it as well. Meanwhile, in another continent, my future wife was reading it. Um, But uh, anyway... (laughs) 
And then after college, I had desire to go into full-time ministry and ended up at Capital Bible Seminary. During one class, maybe in my first semester, there was a guest speaker, a Messianic Jew, and he spoke a little bit about the Left Behind series. He got all riled up and told us that the authors messed up the timing of Gog and Magog, which is a war against Jerusalem, and because they placed it before the rapture. And, and I'll come back to Gog and Magog in a moment. Fast forward to my third year, I'm taking a class with Dr. Beal. To no one's surprise, we're required to do a paper on Isaiah. I chose the passage Isaiah 65, 17 to 25. You should look at it. There's no doubt in my mind that passage is describing the millennial kingdom. But then one of the key lessons I learned in that class was this. Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, applies broadly and differently some Old Testament prophecies. He doesn't override the original intent of the prophets, but nevertheless, he sees beyond them. So practically speaking, the words of Isaiah, new heaven and new earth, not only applies to the millennial kingdom, it also applies to the eternal state. And remember that Gog and Magog, it not only happens at the end of the tribulation, it also happens at the end of the millennial kingdom. So I threw all that on you to make a point. I was not force-fed dispensational premillennialism. It's not a view that only takes two or three proof passages. We need to encourage young believers to read the Bible cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, and let them learn it for themselves. Hopefully that person will not be doing it alone, but with the help of good books and good teachers. And that's where we come in. Ideally, we as church would be like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, opening up the word together, asking questions. Do you understand what you're reading? And replying, how can I unless someone guides me? We should be like the Bereans who received the word of Paul and Silas, but also searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. But it takes time to declare the whole counsel of God. It doesn't have to take 10 years like me. Perhaps with good training, about three to four years. If it took you a shorter amount of time, good for you. Give yourself a hand. But there are many out there Fellow believers that didn't grow up in a Christian home, did not go to a Christian school, didn't have a Ryrie study Bible, let alone any Bible. We must help them grow. And such help should take place in the context of church membership and discipleship. And that leads to the second sub-point. Let's now discuss the order of discipleship. Just before this line in the statement of faith that we're talking about, we have another important line about the responsibility of believers who live between the two advents of Christ. We believe that the gospel commission of Matthew 28, 18 to 20, is for the church today. Let's go to those verses. And if you go to Matthew 28, we know that Jesus has risen from the grave And before his ascension, he appears to the eleven on a Galilean mountain.
And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. If you've heard good sermons on this passage before, you're most likely taught that there's one main command here, make disciples. Go is actually a participle with the imperative force, what's called attendant circumstance. Obviously, going is a necessary step of discipleship ministries. But there are two more participles besides going, baptizing and teaching. And these participles proceed in chronological order. Discipleship, disciple-making means we have to go to the lost world, evangelize and baptize them, train them up in God's word. Notice how the teaching of all things does not come first. Baptism comes before that. Just a reminder that baptism is a sign of regeneration, not effective in itself to save us. Yet it's still an important step of obedience soon after salvation. It's a public act that lets others know that you've identified with Christ and now you follow him. We read in Acts 2.41, the normal order in the early church is conversion, baptism, and church membership. And then in the next verse, verse 42, we read that they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. So there's the order of discipleship. Go, baptize, and teach. So let's bring the two subpoints together. On one hand, it takes time to teach and learn the whole counsel of God and eschatology. At the same time, the order of discipleship strongly implies membership commitment before teaching everything. It's not teach all things and then membership. Our current setup is that you stay out of our church family until you get all your eschatology in order. I don't think that's what God intended with the Great Commission. Paul told Timothy that he must commit what he learned to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. But then the apostle also says, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. There's no way to prevent the need for correction in a long-term discipleship. Paul showed patience as he helped the Thessalonians get over some confusion about end-time events. And look at 1 Thessalonians 4.13-18, which is one of the texts in the sermon notes there. Or Let's read that together. you're following along, it's in page 822 of your pew Bible. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise 
first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The Thessalonians got some details wrong about the end times. I think today they, a lot of people who read this Bible passage conflated with Matthew 24 and 25. But that's no reason to close the church or kick out its members. In the same way, mature teachers should imitate Paul and patiently help other members get their end-time doctrine right. Now, I do think we'll have less disagreement about the next point. But let me go on to that. As waiters and servants of Christ, we wait for the judgment of Satan. Let's read the next line of the statement of faith. We believe that Satan is a person, the author of the fall, and that he shall be eternally punished. Job 1.7 reveals a conversation between the Lord and Satan. The latter replies when asked about his whereabouts, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. That matches the description of his activity in 1 Peter 5.8. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, as seeking whom he may devour. This is why saints must be sober and vigilant. This is also why Satan is not currently bound in a great chain and locked away in the abyss, as amillennialists believe. But whatever your millennial view might be, all Christians should agree that the devil's a person the author of the fall, and he shall be eternally punished. Let's go back to the fall. Genesis 3 is literal history. The first humans did disobey God. They plunged our world into darkness and corruption. When this fall took place, through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. That one man blamed The woman, Eve, and the woman turned around and said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. But now, see how the serpent didn't say to God, Well, you created me like this, so it's all your fault. The buck stops here. Sin goes back to the serpent, who's identified in Revelation 12, 9, as the great dragon, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He's a murderer from the beginning, our Lord says, a liar and the father of it. God, on the other hand, cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Satan's the tempter, and we are tempted when we're drawn away by our own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. This is what James says in chapter 1. This is what happened with the best of us, Adam and Eve, and we're no better than them today. That's why the curse of the fall is upon us. And if it's not removed, if we don't solve our sin problem, we'll end up in the lake of fire and brimstone, tormented day and night forever and ever, along with the devil. That's why it's so urgent that you understand the good news of Jesus Christ. Right now is the time 
There's a song that we sing regularly here at Faith Bible Church, and one of the verses go like this. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry, tell your better, you will never come at all. That's the urgency. You can't afford to wait to get better. You can't remove the burden of sin from yourself. We need Jesus, the seed of the woman, to bruise the serpent's head. The Son of God had to partake in flesh and blood because only he could, through death, destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Christ lived a perfect life, and then he gave up that life on the cross, dying for sins that we committed, taking the penalty of hell upon himself. After paying that in full, he was buried and rose again on the third day. He ascended to heaven, and someday he'll return to judge all mankind. All of us must repent and trust in Christ. Turn from sin that makes us unjust. Turn to Jesus, the sinless, just, and holy one. Ask him to forgive you. Do not live in sin anymore, and do not risk dying in your sins. Place your hope of heaven in him and his works, and your hope will be blessed. God grants us eternal life as a gift through faith alone. Believe in Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life. Rest on his promise. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And so because of Jesus... We look forward to the resurrection of life. Let's, let me read the final line of our statement. We believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust, and in the eternal conscious punishment of the lost and the eternal joy of the saved. We see that even those in religious circles question the doctrine of final resurrection, the Sadducees, and some troublemakers in Corinth denied it. Others in first century misinterpreted it as some symbolic event, saying that it already passed. Our Lord and apostles and opposed such teachings. Jesus said, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, but all live to him. Paul said, and I'm paraphrasing in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection of the dead, Jesus is not risen, our preaching is empty, our faith is futile, futile, the apostles are liars, we're still in our sins, those who died in Christ lost, and we are of all men the most pitiable. So there is indeed a resurrection to come. The New Testament continued the teaching of Daniel 12 too. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. But there are two new truths in the New Testament. One, the church, both the dead in Christ and those alive and remain, will be changed from corrupt to incorrupt, mortal to immortal, before all the other saints. And that's the rapture event talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. And then two, the resurrection of the just and unjust will not happen at the same time. Turn with me to Revelation 20, 4 to 6, which is the last book of 
the Bible, Revelation 20, 4 to 6. And I'll pick up from the middle of uh, verse 4. Twenty four to six Revelation. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Old Testament saints and the most recent martyrs will partake in the first resurrection. They will enter the millennial kingdom with the raptured church saints and the survivors of the tribulation. But then we learn about another resurrection. The Bible calls it the second death in Revelation 20, same chapter, down at verse 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So this is the great white throne, judgment of works. Here they face God with whom there is no partiality. This is where human conscience bears witness, accusing or excusing us. Seekers of men are judged. One either perishes without the law or he or she is judged by the law. It will be plain and obvious that day that there is none righteous, no, not one. Such visions can be frightening for the lost, But we, the redeemed, rejoice and sing for joy, knowing that God judges the people righteously. Our part is not in the second death, but in the first resurrection. That's because Christ has abolished death, and he's the first fruits of our resurrection. By faith, we're buried with Christ through his baptism into death that we won't plunge into the fiery lake of fire and brimstone. So let's go to the next part of our service, looking forward to that resurrection with the grateful heart, and then looking back at the sacrifice that made our destiny secure. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we live securely, that we have this blessed hope. A firm foundation, your inspired and inerrant word gives us peace at night. We can sleep soundly, 
because your promises are yes and amen in your son Jesus Christ. And all of them, not just the fact that we're saved, all the promises concerning the future is secure. Our part is in the first resurrection because of your son resurrected from the grave. Lord, we pray that that will give us hope as we see the evil around us with Satan just running rampage throughout the world. We know that you're in control. You're on the throne. And we look forward to the return of your son. We look forward to the resurrection. Lord, we pray that it would be soon. We pray that it would be today, but we know that it's all according to your perfect timing and your perfect will. And until that day, we want to be faithful. We want to be good stewards of all that you have given us, spiritual gifts, our resources. And we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.